This ReachMD program is featured on Sermo, a free online community exclusively for physicians. To discuss this program with your colleagues, visit www.sermo.com. That's S-E-R-M-O dot com. When you join, enter ReachMD in the promotion box to receive a $15 Amazon gift card. At Amgen, our mission is to serve patients. As a biotechnology pioneer since 1980, Amgen was one of the first companies to realize the promise of this new science by bringing safe and effective novel therapeutics from lab to manufacturing plant to patient. Amgen therapeutics have changed the practice of medicine, helping millions of people around the world in the fight against cancer, kidney disease, rheumatoid arthritis, and other serious illnesses. With a deep and broad pipeline of potential new medicines, Amgen remains committed to moving science forward to dramatically improve people's lives. To learn more about our pioneering science, please visit our website at amgen.com. Amgen, where pioneering science delivers vital medicines. You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Innovations in Medicine, enhancing the medical community's knowledge of science and biotechnology. Innovations in Medicine is sponsored by Amgen, where pioneering science delivers vital medicines. For more information about Amgen, visit amgen.com. The death cap mushroom, the destroying angel. Researchers are learning how these lethal mushrooms kill. Today we're talking about some of the most dangerous and fiendishly clever organisms on Earth, poisonous mushrooms. The names alone sound like something out of a B-movie, Death Cap Destroying Angel, I can see Cagney in the 1930s and something like this. But how do these mushrooms kill? Researchers at Michigan State University who were studying the Death Cap thought they knew. They were looking for a big gene that produces a certain enzyme, the one that was supposed to do the damage. But after years of trying and failing to sort out what was going on, they stumbled on something that was a complete surprise. Here to tell us about that discovery is Dr. Heather Hallen, a plant biologist and postdoctoral fellow at Michigan State University, and she'll tell us a little bit about treating people who've eaten the wrong mushrooms. Her new research appears in a recent issue of the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, but she's been in the poisonous mushroom business a long time. Those are her words, not mine. Welcome to the program, Dr. Hallen. Thank you for having me, Paul. Tell us a little bit about these things. The death cap and the destroying angel, are they the most common lethal mushrooms in this country? They are. There are other lethal mushrooms in this country, but the death cap and destroying angel are the most common. There are several species of destroying angels native to North America, and they're all satiny white. You can't really distinguish between them without using a microscope. So if I wander around in the woods, either outside of New York where I am or in the Midwest where you are, would I see these things? You've got a good chance to see them at the right time of year, which in this part of the world would be anywhere from early August until the first hard frosts in November. And do they occur in a particular place? Are they under oak trees or something, or are they just anywhere? They like oak and pine. They're mycorrhizal. They have a obligate symbiotic relationship with trees, and oaks and pines in particular are good for encouraging ammonitis. You know, there's that great old line, there are old mushroom hunters and bold mushroom hunters, but no old, bold mushroom hunters. If I were foolish enough to think that this thing was something safe and took a bite, what happens? You'd feel fine for long enough to get it well into your system. 
usually there's a lag time of between 12 and 36 hours between eating and the first symptoms, by which point stomach pumping doesn't do any good anymore because it's already passed through the gastrointestinal tract. Spell out the, the grisly story for us. What would happen to me first? I'm sorry I chose myself as an example, but what would happen to me first? <laughs> you eat the mushroom, you're fine and happy, you... We'll say you eat it for dinner, you go to bed, maybe the next morning you don't feel so well. And say by 10 o'clock the next morning, there's clearly something wrong, vomiting, diarrhea, severe gastrointestinal symptoms. At that point, usually it's bad enough that you would report to a hospital. And if you're lucky, you remember to connect this with the mushroom you ate last night to put the doctors on the right track. After about 12 or 24 hours of this serious discomfort, you feel better and if the doctors aren't on the ball, they might release you from the hospital and say, well, food poisoning or whatever it was, it's gone now. If they've paid attention when you mention the mushroom... I would feel so much better that really somebody would think the thing had passed. Yes, it, it's happened, and it's even happened in recent years. Wow. Now I'm sent home thinking I've survived. Now what happens? Progressive symptoms of liver failure. And basically, if the doctors are on the ball when you mention the mushroom, they start monitoring your liver enzymes and see that while you're... GI symptoms are starting to go away, that your liver is starting to show signs of serious distress as the toxin has made it to the liver and is slowly shutting down protein synthesis and killing that organ. At that point, if the signs are serious enough, they might start looking to do a liver transplant. Boy, we're not fooling around here. Before you did your most recent work, what did people know or what did they think they knew about how this happened? What, how does the mushroom manage to do all this horrible stuff? Yeah, actually, we've known about that for quite a long time. So the innovation in my work is really getting at the genes and what's going on in the mushroom to lead to the toxin. The toxin has been known since probably at least the 1940s. They started isolating some of the toxins in this group, and it's been well known since the 1970s how it works and what it does. Tell us about that. What does it do? Yeah, so the toxins that are doing the damage are called amatoxins out of the genus Ammonita that has these mushrooms. And also, amanatins are certain amatoxins. I'll try not to use the words interchangeably. But these are small cyclic peptides. They're made up of eight amino acids, and they're RNA polymerase II inhibitors. So they RNA polymerase II produces messenger RNA, which in turn produces proteins. They block the production of messenger RNA. Yes. And thereby block the production of proteins. Yep. That sounds like that's serious, but how does that become so serious? Well, basically, once you're not producing proteins anymore, your cell is able to use up the reserve of proteins that it has, the reserve of RNA that it has, and then it can't make any more, and it can no longer communicate with other cells. It can no longer maintain itself, and it shuts down. This is happening throughout the body or in certain places? It is throughout the body. Where we see symptoms primarily are the gastrointestinal tract and the liver because that's where ingested amatoxin comes into contact first. In serious cases, we'll see signs of kidney damage. Uh, there have been reports of heart and brain damage. But the liver is especially hard hit because it will actually actively take in amatoxin. A liver cell presented with amatoxin will go out of its way to drag it inside the cell where it can then poison itself. Now, you mentioned that at a certain point, 24 or 36 hours in, uh, somebody who eats these things might start to feel better. W what's going on there? What makes people feel better at a certain point? What's happening at that point is the toxin that was affecting the GI tract to begin with has passed through. Some cells have been killed off, but that's the end of that toxin. The toxin is no longer there. And it's in the liver. 
but it takes a while for the liver to respond and shut down. The liver has to use up its reserves of protein and RNA before it really starts showing signs of serious damage. So you're in the calm before the storm, kind of, or the eye of the hurricane. (laughs) Yeah, good analogy. Um, So tell us about your work now, the the new paper you published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. What were you looking for and what did you find? Well, we were looking for the genes that produce amatoxins. And I'm an evolutionary biologist by training, so I'm interested in this because there are actually four unrelated genera of mushrooms that produce these chemicals. And we thought we knew something about the genes behind them. A lot of Similar compounds are produced by something we call non-ribosomal peptide synthetases. There won't be a quiz later, so don't worry about the name. But these are encoded by extremely large, very recognizable genes. And we were wondering, how is this compound present in four unrelated groups if it's produced by this really huge gene? What does this tell us about the evolution of toxins and mushrooms? So it's odd and notable that it's in these four different groups, and so you wanted to explain why that was the case. Yes. Okay, so uh, how did you proceed? Well, we spent many years doing everything we could to look for this very large gene. There are tricks in PCR, ways of pulling out particular pieces of DNA from an organism. There are enzyme assays to look for a functional non-ribosomal peptide synthetase. We did all kinds of things, and we couldn't find what we were looking for. So So with all all the tools, all the very sophisticated tools of modern molecular biology, it just wasn't working. Yes. How many years did you spend uh, trying to figure this out? Well, I spent two years in earnest working on that in my first postdoc, and I'd started the work probably a year and a half before that, uh, finishing up my graduate studies. Then you didn't get out of the mushroom business altogether. You tried something else. Yep. So what was that? (laughs) Well, we always continued this project kind of on the back burner, but I also did a postdoc in another lab working with uh, some other fungi that infect grain and keeping my hands in the fungal world, certainly. But what we did eventually was we decided to start sequencing the genome of this fungus, and that's kind of an insane approach. But we'd done the calculations, we'd done the math, we knew if this was a non-ribosomal peptide synthetase, we knew the size of the gene we were looking for. We had a rough estimate of the size of the genome, and we figured in a thousand random sequences, we had a pretty good chance of hitting a piece of this gene, and then we could proceed on our merry way. And a thousand sequences isn't all that much. It's not the whole genome. It's You just start randomly sequencing until you hit the right thing. And that didn't work either, but just this past year, Michigan State has obtained a new technology, a new machine, a 454 pyro sequencer that basically sequences 100 megabases or so of DNA very quickly within within a day or two. You'd concluded that you had to do a lot more sequences to find out what was going on. Yes. Right. So you did that. Yes. So we did that. We never found the non-ribosomal peptide synthetase. We're, we now know that amatoxin is not produced by that, despite the fact that other fungal compounds that are related are so penicillin is produced by non-ribosomal peptide synthetase, other similar compounds are. We started being suspicious about the non-ribosomal peptide synthetase hypothesis a few years ago when we weren't finding anything. And the other way to make peptides is by encoding them directly like most proteins are made. That's the way the vast majority of organisms produce the vast majority of their proteins and peptides. NRPSs are rare and strange, but again, we thought they'd apply in this particular case. So we, since amatoxin is a peptide, it's made of eight amino acids, we know the eight amino acids, we know their relative order, we can search for any DNA that will encode those amino acids in that order. And when we finally got the latest batch of sequence, we were able to find them. And what makes this very interesting 
is that we also found phallotoxin, which is a very closely related to amatoxin, another chemical produced by deadly ammonita mushrooms. But we found something that encoded phallotoxin, and outside of the actual toxin regions, there were very conserved amino acid sequences. So it looked like we had very closely related genes producing two different chemicals that are known in this one mushroom. And when we started looking further, we found 15 more members of this gene family that have the two conserved regions on either side flanking a hypervariable toxin-producing region or chemical-producing region. Thanks so much for talking to us about the death cap and these other ferocious beasts. Our guest, Dr. Heather Hallen, plant biologist at Michigan State University. Thanks for being with us, Dr. Hallen. Thank you, Paul. I'm your host, Paul Rayburn. We welcome your questions and comments. Please visit us at ReachMD.com, where you see program guide, podcasts of previous shows, or send us an email at innovations at ReachMD.com. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for listening to Innovations in Medicine on ReachMD XM 157 the channel for medical professionals. Innovations in Medicine is sponsored by Amgen, where pioneering science delivers vital medicines.